The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. As I said, Happy New Year. We're hearing a lot of that. I heard a lot of that this morning. Happy New Year. Indeed, today it's unique. Today is January 1st on a Lord's Day. Again, that doesn't happen very often where January 1st lands on a Sunday, the Lord's Day. So today's January 1st, 2017. We're hearing a lot of Happy New Year. We're also hearing a lot of people talking about what they're going to do this year and resolutions and greetings. I got a postcard three days ago in the mail from a, I think it was a real estate company, and on it was greeting me, Happy New Year, Cliff, and it was typed out, and the last sentence kind of jumped out at me and said, uh, may 2017 be the best year ever in your life. And I'm thinking, not. That was my response. Not likely. 2017, the best ever. I mean, I appreciate, you know, the encouragement saying, uh, you know, I hope it's a good, blessed year. So their intentions were wonderful, and that's very common. That's okay. But from a Christian point of view, I'm thinking, 2017, mm, not likely. The trials are a coming, no doubt. I think the best year ever for me that I'm looking forward to is when Jesus returns. So until then, uh, it's trusting the Lord with whatever happens because I can't control the future. Um, so that it dawned on me, how should Christians look at the new year, think about New Year's resolutions? Because there's a lot of that conversation and hype going on. And I actually know Christians that uh, think the new year is a big deal and they're excited about it and they see it as a clean slate and... Uh, time to turn over a new leaf and make new uh, resolutions and desires and very specific and programmatic about it. And even the great Jonathan Edwards, of uh, long ago great Christian writer, he, had his, he was res- resolved and he, he made some resolutions, not necessarily on the new year, but uh, he did it very formally, resolved to do this, to do that, expressing and writing out the desires of his heart as a Christian. So there is a place for that. And in light of the new year, and because today was January 1st, and also because a lot of people are coming and going and traveling, I wanted to pause from the book of Acts where we have been, because I don't want a lot of our people to miss out on the story of the book of Acts. We can pick up on Acts chapter 12 next week, and I thought it would be good and appropriate and even practical and I think really helpful just to stop and look at one of my favorite psalms, uh, Psalm 37. In light of the new year, New Year's resolutions, um, and you, when you think about resolu- what are resolutions, New Year's resolutions, the way people typically articulate them is, uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going, one person I heard last week, uh, next year I'm going, to be, I'm going to be a happy person in 2017. Thinking, wow, really? Good luck. I mean, how are you going to control that? I'm going to be a happy person. Um, so resolutions are usually things that I want to do, I want to control, I plot out, I think I want to do, what I'm going to do. And so the question is, really, can we control the future? Is that the perspective of the Bible? Is that the perspective of a Christian? Are we really that sovereign in order to do that, or should we have a different perspective? Also, at the root of what a resolution is, is not this idea of wanting to control the future, but also a resolution speaks of the desires of the heart, Right? When a person's talking about resolutions, here's what I want to do. They're talking about the desires of their heart. Things they want. Passions that they want fulfilled. Goals they want to achieve. 
attitudes of the mind, actually. Priorities for their life. Those are all kind of synonymous and involved in what a resolution is. Desires, wants, attitudes. And a lot of this has to do with how we think. What I think about things, what I think about the future, what I think about myself, what I think about the world. So our mind is a priority in terms of the involvement of resolutions and the desires of the heart. And so in light of that, I wanted to look at one of my favorite verses, Psalm 37.4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He, God, will give you the desires of your heart. The desires of the heart. Those are resolutions. I want to do that. I desire this. I desire to achieve this, to accomplish this, to go there, to see this happen. The desires of the heart. So in a sense, the Bible does talk about resolutions. I don't have to begin on January 1st, but they're there. Desires of the heart. What do you want? What is the greatest desire of your heart? What are the three greatest things burdening your heart? What are the passions of your soul? If you could delineate them, articulate them, write them down literally, what would they be? The Bible intersects with this reality. It's amazing. Psalm 37, 4, listen to this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and God will give you the desires of your heart. God, that's a promise. That's why this verse is so amazing. God might give you the desires of your heart. Hopefully, God will give you the desires of your heart. We'll see if God... No. God will give you the desires of your heart. So that, indeed, it is a promise. Now, it's not a blank check. There are contingencies involved. There are conditions involved. There is some, there's a phrase that comes before the promise... God will give you the desires of your heart. God will give you the desires of your heart if you do the first part of the verse, and that's delight yourself in the Lord. So there are conditions of receiving the desires of your heart. And so that's what I want to talk about today, coupled with the idea of kind of a Christian worldview about how to think about New Year's resolutions. Now that I've read the, ver the main verse I really want to focus in on, I'm going to kind of start uh, 30,000 feet and then zoom in as we go, really narrowing in on Psalm 37.4, but first setting the context, the broad perspective, and then I want to end today, Lord willing, if we have enough time, to actually go over those seven points I have in the notes. We'll see if that happens. So let me read Psalm 37.1 through 11, just to set a little bit of the context. This verse, Psalm 37.4, needs to be read and understood, defined and interpreted in the context of the entire psalm in all 40 verses, because that's the way David wrote it. You can't just pull it out, isolate it, and make it mean whatever you want it to, and massage it here and there. It, has, it is informed by the context and the verses around it. There's a unified theme all throughout this psalm. And Psalm 37.4 is one of the main verses highlighting, accentuating the main theme that David is trying to communicate to God's people through the Holy Spirit. So here's the context. Psalm 37.4 is very positive. It's speaking to God's people. It's a tremendous promise. And yet the psalm begins negatively, which is kind of surprising. So look at verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. So it starts out talking about evil, wicked people. Talking to God's people about how they should view or not view unbelievers. 
Don't fret about evildoers. Don't be envious towards wrongdoers, for they will wither like the grass and fade like the green herb. So that's all negative, verses 1 and 2. And then it, there's a transition. So it's, don't do this, but now do this. 3 and 4, 5 and 6 kind of all go together. Rather than that, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. He's talking, by the way, David is writing and he's talking to believing Jews, the Israelites, who are living in the land of Israel, the land that God promised to give to the descendants of Abraham, to the Jews. Just in case you were wondering, the land in the Middle East belongs to Israel, even to this day. That was an eternal promise that God gave Israel, the Jews, 3,000, even more than 3,000 years ago, to Abraham. And then he ratifies that and says it again to David. And so David is telling the Jews who live in the land, in the Middle East, in the Promised Land, in Canaan, in Palestine, in Israel, move through the Holy Spirit. David is telling the Jews, the Israelites, stay in the land. Now, they had challenges in the land. Invaders and enemies, which is still true today, 3,000 years later. He's saying, trust the Lord, trust Yahweh, trust your God, trust your covenant God. Dwell in the land, stay in the land, don't forsake the land, don't leave the land, don't abandon the land of promise. Wait, be patient, dwell in the land. So it's very literal when David is talking about dwell, dwell in the land, stay there. He's talking about the land of Israel. Well, how does that apply to us, Pastor Cliff, here in the church, uh, here in Cupertino or Sunnyvale, California? We don't live in Israel, and the church doesn't have literal rights to the land of Israel. Well, it applies to us in that this promise of the land to God's people to Israel is still intact, and it's going to actually literally be fulfilled in the future. That's what the book of Revelation is about in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. So there is still a plan that God has in place regarding the literal land of Israel with respect to His people, which is primarily believing Jews in the future, and the church actually is also going to be incorporated into that. And someday, believe it or not, resurrected believers, Christians, in the age to come will actually be ruling in the land of Israel with Christ with a rod of iron on the earth. So this is the context. Well in the land, cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And then he just goes on. So the overarching theme in these 40 verses for David is a practical reminder to God's people of how to live wisely, faithfully, obediently, optimistically, in faith, in a fallen world that seems to be dominated and run by wicked, godly, I mean, godless people. If you look around, the believers and the righteous seem to be in the minority. This world is dominated by evil people, and these evil people have 
power, they have material wealth, they have success, they have prestige, they have exposure. They call the shots, and many times they persecute the godly. And this seems unjust. There's disparity here. This is an injustice. God, how can you let this go on and on? And this has been true for 6,000 years. This has been true since the fall of Adam and Eve because we live in a cursed earth. And so King David is reminding his people, no, what you're seeing is not unique to you. This is normal. This is what it's like to live in a sinful, wicked, fallen world. And yeah, apparently those who succeed many times are godless, wicked, evil, mockers of God, blasphemous. We see that in our own country. I mean, practical modern-day examples would be those in Hollywood, right? They have apparently all the money and influence and fame and everything else that goes with it, and yet many of their lives, not all of them, but many of their lives are just uh, just totally perverted, wicked, evil, and even aggressively anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Bible. We seem to be the minority. We don't seem to have a voice, the godly people in this country and around the world. So that is the theme that David is laying out here. He's He knows this, he understands this. Really, it's God knows this and God understands this because God is the one who's prompting David to write this through the Holy Spirit So as he speaks to his people. So even though this was written 3,000 years ago, it's amazing how relevant and pertinent this psalm is for us even today. Uh, Before I go into the details a little bit more and flesh out Psalm 37 for this amazing verse, just want to give you a big picture regarding psalms and, and Psalm 37 in particular because it is so... Rich, can't do justice to it, even one verse. Uh, There is so much here, but just let me give you some highlights about Psalm 37. Psalm 37 exists in the book of Psalms, which is 150 chapters or 150 separate writings put together, actually by many different authors. I think Solomon penned a few. Moses even wrote one of the Psalms, we know of, for sure, and some other authors. But David actually wrote about half of the Psalms, about 75 of the 150 Psalms. And this is one of the psalms that David actually wrote. So we're talking, this was written 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 B.C. It's one of the most ancient documents that has been preserved in detail, without error. It's absolutely phenomenal. So David wrote this psalm. David wrote this psalm in his old age. He wrote over the course. He was a prophet. He wasn't just a king. David was a prophet, a spokesperson for God. He was a hymn writer. He He was a musician. He was a songwriter. He was a warrior. David was many things. He was amazing. He was the second king of Israel. He loved God with passion. He was a a frail and weak and sinful man who knew God, who loved God, who depended upon the forgiveness of God, who was very open, very emotional, very uh, honest about his heart's desires and put them down in ink for us to read as we get to look into the heart of David many times. And this is one of those examples, Psalm 37. Well, he wrote this in his old age because verse 25, David says, I have been young and now I am old. Now, David died when he was 70 years old. So he lived around about 1,000 B.C. And so he's writing this psalm. This is probably one of the last things that he put into writing. And he's writing this at the end of his life. And so because it's written at the end of his life, it is full of experience, perspective, the big picture, tried and tested by time, there's much wisdom to offer, coupled with the fact that it is inspired by the Spirit of God. This isn't just literature. This is holy Scripture. This is God speaking to us on, in ink. It's amazing. 
This is the voice of God, not just David. But he is using David as the human agent who is seasoned, who is wise, who has been through a very difficult and hard life, and he's moved by the Spirit of God, imparting wisdom to his people. Maybe he's writing this to Solomon, who's about to take over the kingdom. And at the same time, because he's a prophet, he knows God is going to preserve this for the descendants of Solomon and all believers of all the ages, because it is holy writ. So it's a treasure. Written by David. It is a poem. This is Hebrew poetry written in verse and in stanzas or strophes. You can't appreciate it reading it in English. You have to read it in Hebrew. It's absolutely beautiful because it's an acrostic. So David, there's about eight different acrostics in the book of Psalms. David wrote at least five acrostics. And an acrostic is a poem where you begin each sentence or a certain sentence with a letter of the alphabet going in alphabetical order. So if you wrote a love poem to your sweetheart and you wanted to write an acrostic, like we used to do in first grade. We wrote first grade acrostics to our mommy, mother. We start with M. Mommy, you are so wonderful. And then you go to the next sentence, O. And then you say something using O beginning that sentence, and then it goes, and then it spells mother in the, the column, and it's a poem. That's exactly what David did here in Hebrew. So it is an acrostic. It use, uses all 22 Hebrew letters, and it goes in alphabetical order. And actually, the first word of this psalm, if you look at your English Bible there, Psalm 37, verse 1, uh, the first word is al, or al, and begins with an A, the Hebrew A, first letter of the alphabet. That is actually the first letter of this entire poem that he writes. Now, in our English Bible, it says, do not. So the word not is actually the first word in the Hebrew, just so you know, this is an acrostic. And then the B in Hebrew, you got olive or uh, Aleph Bait, A-B, very similar to English, Aleph Bait, Alphabet, Aleph Bait, Alphabet, al oh, that's where we got Alphabet, yes, from the Hebrew Alphabet. So b the verse 3, trust, that's the B, that begins with a B in Hebrew, Bata, Beta, trust. And then he just goes, Aleph Bait, C, no, Gimel, a, B, C, Aleph, Bet, Aleph, Bet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, everybody together. Vazayan, Vazayan, Chetet, Yod, Chetet. Anyway, I, I love that song. So that is your Hebrew alphabet. It goes through, and poetically, keeping symmetry and balance, he, use, he starts a, a verse or a stanza with a, a Hebrew alphabetical letter going in order, and then he writes four lines. Boom. Okay, so there's parallelism there. And then after his four lines, then he starts the next letter in the alphabet. Just so you know the beauty of even the structure involved, because David was an artiste. Sorry, all you engineers here in the Silicon Valley. He was an artist. And so that's how he wrote this beautiful and lovely psalm. And it's constrained somewhat. It doesn't, there's not this development of thought as you would have in narrative or in Paul's exposition and these didactic uh, ways that he communicated. They're almost like Proverbs. Each four-verse stanza is like one proverb, one main truth for every four verses, and that's kind of how it should be read and interpreted. So verses 1 and 2 go together as one stanza, and the main truth there is don't envy the evil. And then verses 3 and 4 together, uh, that's one stanza, and there's a main truth there, trust the Lord. Uh, verses 5 and 6, that's one stanza goes together, the main truth there is uh, give your life to God. 
and uh, 7 and 8 go together, or just verse 7, be patient and wait on him. So that's really how this psalm should be studied. Each stanza is a proverbial truth, and each stanza begins with an, a letter of the alphabet. One that I thought was interesting is if you'd look at verse 18. Our English Bible says, the Lord. Now, the Lord actually doesn't come first in the Hebrew. Actually, the, the word knows in Hebrew comes first, knows. And the Hebrew word for knows, get this, is Yoda. Really, Yoda. What does Yoda mean? Well, the form here in Hebrew, Yoda means the all-knowing one. And it's talking about not the little green Kermit-looking guy in a science fiction movie. God, Yahweh is the all-knowing one. But that's exactly where Star Wars got the name for Yoda, the all, you know, the all-knowing little guy. Took it right out of the Hebrew Bible. I don't know if George Lucas did that or whatever. Uh, it's amazing how much Star Wars stole out of the Bible, like uh, not only Yoda, but Luke, taken right out of the Bible. Leia, right out of the Bible. I could go on and on. But I won't. I just thought that was interesting. Um, other things about this psalm, big picture. Um, oh, there's an amazing thing. There are 18 imperatives in here. So this is a psalm that you do. That's unique. You can think about, there are many psalms where there are no commands or imperatives. Uh, psalm 23 doesn't have a whole lot of imperatives, if any at all. There's no commands there. So many psalms are like that. There's a great variety in psalms. Some are just laments. They're pouring out their hearts. Some are just prayers. Um, but this one is loaded with imperatives for God's people. Things we must do. 18 imperatives of all. 18 commands. So if you read this, as a believer, you should feel like you have been commissioned by God and called to be obedient and do something and to take action. As a matter of fact, just in the first, in eight verses alone, in the first eight verses, verses three to eight, there are 11 imperatives, 11 commands, 11 things believers are commanded to do in a regular, ongoing fashion. And if you don't do them, you're being disobedient. If I don't do them, I am being sinful. So that's one of the unique features about this psalm, full of these imperatives or commands, things we must do. And in keeping with that, to complement that, this Psalm is loaded with promises. I think that's why I love this psalm so much. Someone, I don't even remember, what I, when I got saved some 30 years ago, and I was in college, I was a sophomore, no, I was a freshman, and I don't even know who it was. Somebody introduced me, a fellow believer as a new Christian, my freshman year, introduced me to Psalm 37, and particularly Psalm 37, 4, and they said, you could literally make this one of your theme verses for life and live your life in accord with this truth of Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that was almost 30 years ago, and I've done that. I've tried to do that for 30 years. I want to delight myself in you, God, and I do want the desires of my heart. And I've, got, I've seen God be faithful time and time again. And so I want to share with you a practical way maybe to implement this in your own thought and in your own life and see God's hand move in a very practical and immediate way. So that's one of my goals today. But it's loaded with 35 promises in the 40 verses. It, there's probably more than 35 verses because some of them are compound. 35 promises from God to the believer. 35. I can't think of another chapter or psalm in the Bible that, it, that has 35 or anything close to it. That's why it's so encouraging. 35 promises. 
I would challenge you to encourage you this week. One way to start off the new year is, if you can, for the next week or every day, just read Psalm 37. And when you're done, if you're a Christian and you know God and you're done reading it, you will be encouraged. It's like, wow, God, you set the standard high. You promised a lot of things here. He did. It's loaded with promises and ways that God wants to bless his people. Also, regarding the context, this psalm, as I said earlier, it's addressed to God's people. It's addressed to believers. It's addressed to people who know God. Today, for us, that's knowing God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the one that died on the cross, absorbed God the Father's wrath for our sin. He died as the God-man. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. He ascended on high. He called us through His Holy Spirit in the gospel, calling us as sinners to repent and give our life to Him and admit we can't be saved apart from Him as the Savior he is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to have his sins forgiven. He's the only way to know God in this life and for all eternity. And that's believing in that is uh, how you become a Christian, born again, regenerate, saved, a Christian. And so we are the audience of this psalm, believers of all ages, really. So wait, this was written 3,000 years ago to the people of Israel. Why is this relevant, pertinent to us as Christians today? Good question. Well, Ephesians 5, 19 says that Christians should encourage one another with psalms. That's what I'm trying to do today. I want to encourage you with Psalm 37. Because God doesn't change. Circumstances change, things change. Uh, even some of God's promises change in terms of how they're implemented, puts things on hold, does something new. Yet God doesn't change. So it's the same God revealed. By the way, God is mentioned as the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in this psalm, 16 times, the Lord. That is the personal name of God. It is Yahweh in Hebrew. There are different, many different names for God. Elohim, which is kind of a generic name for God, is uh, the God of the universe, the God of all, the, the creator God, sometimes the impersonal God. This is a different word for God, the Lord. It's very specific. It is Yahweh. It is the God of His people, the one who keeps His covenant, the one who has an intimate relationship with His people. For us, Yahweh, the Lord. Jesus is called Yahweh in the New Testament by Paul. It's amazing. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the triune, part of the triune God. So this is very relevant for us. This is our God. This, this is true of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks as Lord Yahweh 16 different times. Not only that, God is referred to in his attributes and by different names as many as over 11 different attributes of God are listed here. That's how amazing God is. He's referred to as the sovereign one, the faithful one, the avenging God, the, the, the God who is judged, the holy God, the provider, the sustainer, the omniscient one, the personal God, the helper, the protector, and it concludes appropriately so as the saving God, the one who saves his people. This is just rich. And another dominant theme throughout the psalm is, you'll note, alternating back and forth, the words of evildoers are the wicked and then the righteous. The wicked and the righteous. The wicked and the righteous. Uh, this psalm mentions evil people 21 times. It mentions the wicked 14 times. Complementing that, it mentions godly people 20 times. It mentions the righteous 9 times. So, wicked people, godly people. Wicked people, godly people. The wicked, the righteous. The wicked are called wicked, evildoers, enemies, wrongdoers, the cursed violent ones and transgressors. Those are all synonyms. 
That is the biography of an unbeliever, someone who is not a Christian. That's God's diagnosis of their heart. Well, they look so nice. Well, yeah, they could be nice. I spent the holidays with some unbelieving family and friends, and I was reminded, wow, I've got some really, really nice relatives who are not Christians. They are kind, they are sweet, they are generous, beautiful temperament, not all of them, uh, but a couple in particular, so, man, this is, and it's a reminder of the goodness of God in, in terms of common grace. Common grace is what it is. It's not because of salvation, it's common grace. God made every human being in His image, and as a result, every human being, whether they're a Christian or not, is precious to God, is sacred to God. Their life needs to be protected. They are all candidates for the gospel of God and His redeeming grace. It's a proper view of humanity. But the true diagnosis, spiritually speaking, from God's point of view, is an unbeliever is wicked to the core. And it will come out. It will leak out. Sometimes behind the scenes, in private, in secret. So many times we can't see it. The grass is really not greener over there in the life of an unbeliever. That's one of the main themes here. Christian, believer, don't get caught up and deceived by the grass is greener over there in the unbelieving home or territory or turf or their world where they have all the hoopla, all the money, all the parties, all the materialism, all the satisfaction, everything they want, and everything's great and rosy. It's not. Because deep within their soul, they are empty, they are depressed, they are lost, they are confused, they have no hope, they have no God. That's really what's going on. They're looking for meaning. They're trying to find that meaning through all kinds of things in the world. And there's this huge void, a massive vacuum that only God can satisfy through personal salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be deceived by the superficial. Don't be misled by that which is shallow. Don't compare yourself with unbelievers. Don't look over at their life. God forbid, don't envy what they have. Why would you want to envy a wicked person who's cursed by God and has no future if they don't repent? We have the greatest, most precious thing in the world, and that is a personal relationship with the God of the universe, the blessed Savior, the greatest treasure of all. So that's really the overriding theme here. We need to have a right perspective. So that kind of speaks to the kind of theme, uh, the psalm that this is. This is a wisdom psalm. It's a practical psalm. Even though it's poetry, even though it uses figurative language, that doesn't mean it's not literal. It's filled with literal truth. It's an educational psalm. It's a pedagogical psalm, if you will. It's an instructional psalm, so it's very deliberate. One of the main things that David or the Holy Spirit is trying to do here is to talk directly to the Christian about how you, you need to think properly. You need to live your life in accordance to biblical truth. That's how a Christian lives their life, in accord with biblical truth, with timeless scriptural principles. The unbeliever is not to live their life day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year, based on emotion or circumstances. That's another one of the main truths here. Believer, you need to think properly. Think God's thoughts after Him. There's only one way to do that, and that's think in accordance with Scripture. We're going to see that. So that's one of David's main goals here. Don't be misled. Don't be traumatized. Don't be upset by the world falling apart all around you and seeing all that they have and all that you don't, all the suffering and rest that you're under and everybody else is happy, that is not an accurate and true picture of reality. 
And even if you are under duress, even if you are suffering, even if you have hardships that can't be alleviated, well, that's our calling and lot in this fallen world. And the reality of Satan who is real, the curse that is on the earth, the fact that we are sinful, weak people, the fact that we are in the death process, and the fact because we love Jesus Christ means we are accursed, rejected, and enemies of the world, and they hate Jesus. As a result, they will hate us. So there, there are many reasons to be living under duress in this world if you're a Christian. And what David and the Holy Spirit are saying is that, you know what, that's normal. Really. And yet at the same time, in light of, you can still have deep-seated joy like nobody else. You can even have prosperity in the desires of your heart met as God determines and sees fit in keeping with His will. So that's just kind of a big picture overview of the psalm. Now let's go ahead and look at the details, and let's really zero in on Psalm uh, 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Do you want the desires of your heart to be fulfilled? I do. I'm sorry. I <laughs> sound greedy, don't I? Don't be confused when you hear, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. This is not health, wealth, and prosperity Christianity, even though this Bible verse is in there. Maybe some of you are not familiar with health, wealth, and prosperity Christianity. It, it is dominant in the Christian world today in America. Uh, most of the prominent Bible teachers that you will see on television and in bookstores are health, wealth, and prosperity teachers. And basically what they, they're, they're the happy preachers. They just want to make you feel good and give a lot of superficial promises. And many times God is presented like a genie in a bottle and you just rub the bottle and ask for your wishes and boom, God will give it to you. And actually one of the verses they use to validate that truth is this one right here. God is going to give you the desires of your heart. So you ask for whatever you want, and he'll give it to you. And actually, that's taken out of context. This verse isn't teaching that God wants you healthy and wealthy and prosperous in terms of material possessions. That's actually contrary to what the Bible actually teaches. So we've got to guard against that. That is not what we are talking about. We're talking about a different kind of prosperity and fulfillment of the desires of the heart. And that is determined by the context here. And again, I said, to get the desires of your heart, there are conditions. It's not a free-for-all. It's not, oh, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. What do you want? Well, I want uh, a new Xbox, and I want a lot of money, and I want a cool, fancy car, and you can just go on and on and on. And there's nothing wrong inherently with any of those. But if that's all you want is just things, that reveals the heart. You're... you're Mind is earthly, your desires are crass, they are short-sighted, you're not thinking on heavenly things, and actually this verse isn't even primarily talking about things. When he's going to give you the, the desires of your heart aren't necessarily things, they're not even mainly things. What are the desires of the heart? They're really attitudes, goals, spiritual goals, and we're going to explore that in a little bit more detail. But going back to verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. So here's the condition. I ask the question, who wants the desires of their heart? I do. Well, what is the condition? Well, verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. That is the condition. So if you want the desires of your heart, then you need to do this. Beginning of verse 4. 
delight yourself in the Lord. That's the condition, that's the stipulation. There, there's more than that. Uh, well, what does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? Well, that word is very specific. I'll talk about it in just a second. But that, that meaning is also interpreted by other verses around it. For example, because verses 3 and 4, they go together, they shouldn't be separated. You can't read verse 4 without reading verse 3 because it's a stanza that goes together and it's Hebrew parallelism. So there are synonymous statements being made. So verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord is synonymous with verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good, which is another condition. What does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? Well, it means to trust in Him, have faith in Him. Also, delighting in the Lord also means to do verses 1 and 2, those commands. To not fret because of evildoers. Don't look at evil, prosperous people in the world and envy them or be jealous of them. You know, what typically happens when you see somebody around you at work, in your family, nearby, in proximity, on television, they are highly successful, they have it all, and we can be tempted as believers to think, oh, I want that. Oh, I wish that I, would, I had what they had. Or why do they get that? They don't deserve that. I deserve that. Very easy for us as Christians to think that way and to be tempted that way. That's jealousy. That is envy. And you keep doing that, then you're going to fall, fall into this word called fretting. That's verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Don't envy them. Don't be discouraged because of what they have. Don't become discontent. In your, this all has to do with how you think and how I think. God is addressing the mind. Do not be jealous of unbelievers. Don't fret. And some people live their life this way. They are prone to fretting. Christians, for many Christians, this is a weakness. Fretting. Fretting is worrying. It's being uptight. It's being anxious. It's not having joy. It is not having peace. That's huge. It is not having joy and not having peace. Oh, what are those virtues? Those come right out of Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your life as you submit to Him in obedience. And if you do that and live your life that way, then God is going to give you the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which are not things, but attitudes, virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So joy and peace come only from the Spirit of God as we live in obedience to the Word of God. And fretting is the opposite of that. If you are fretting and worrying, and anxious, and uptight, you don't have joy. Your joy has been taken away, and your peace has been... You have no peace. A Christian who is an anxious person, just overwhelmed with anxiety, they are worrying about the future. They are worrying about things they shouldn't be worrying about. And God simply says, how should a Christian deal with worry and anxiety? Well, it starts right here. Stop it. Really? There are other things to do, but you start with that one. God says, don't do it. Jesus said it three times in, in Matthew 6. Stop worrying, stop worrying, stop worrying. What does that mean? Stop being anxious, stop being overwhelmed by anxiety. Stop. Jesus said it three times. But he does it in the context of trying to address the thinking of the believer. You are thinking wrong. So you need to change your thinking. And if you change your thinking, then you can really fulfill this by, by stopping it. Stop fretting, stop worrying. Some have said, and I tend to agree with them, that depression is a problem of looking, keep looking back and dwelling on the past. And anxiety and worry is dwelling on the future of things that haven't happened yet. And they are totally related. Because it all has to do with how you control your mind. It's a lack of self-control of the mind. Think on things that are lovely and true, Philippians 4. Then God will give you supernatural peace of mind, which 
gets rid of depression and gets rid of anxiety. Stop fretting. And in this case, stop fretting about the unbelievers around you who seem to have it all. Heaven on earth. And that's what they think they have. They don't. So all this defines what it means to delight yourself in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Have the right perspective of the world. Have the right perspective of believers. Have the right perspective of where you are in relation to God and this world. Don't seek after the superficial. What else does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your whole life to Him. Are you willing to commit every area of your life to God and just lay it before Him? God, I give you my personal life, my family life, my entertainment life, the roles that I have in life, uh, the role I have as a worker, as an employee, as a boss. God, it's all before you. I laid it all before you. Commit, that means commit your life to Him. That is a condition. If you're not willing to do that, if we don't do that, we're not going to have the desires of our heart met by God. We will short-circuit the desires we have for our heart. Also, what does it mean to delight in the Lord? Verse 7, rest. Rest in the Lord. Just trust Him. You know what? This, this is a rebuke against us as human beings trying to be self-sufficient. Trying to depend in our own strength. No, just rest in Him. There are some things we just got to rest in God. You know what? I can't do that. I can't help that. I can't change that. I can't affect that change. I can't determine that in the future. I can't change the past. I just got to rest in the Lord. That is a part of delighting in God. Coupled with that or complementing that is verse 8. Cease. Cease from anger. Be still. Stop. Just stop. Be quiet. But specifically, cease from anger. What does that mean? The anger actually is anger in this context. It's anger that believers can have towards God. Do you know that Christians get angry at God? I've seen it countless times. And they usually get angry at God because of an unfulfilled desire. God, you didn't give me this. This desire wasn't met. And the sinful human inclination is to respond by getting angry at God. David knows this. The Holy Spirit knows this. That believers can fall prey to this. It is wrong. It's sinful. It's a forgivable sin. And there's a solution to it. And it starts with stop. Don't get angry at God. This is a fallen world. There's a devil. You're a sinner. People hate you. Don't blame God. This is Job's problem. And Job guarded against this. Can't get angry at God. So as you look at the successful, unbelieving world around you and the things that you don't have in your discontentment and frustrations and shortcomings in life and all your unmet desires, the last thing you should do is being angry at God. And anger is a result of ongoing fretting, which he said in verse 1. Don't fret, don't be anxious, don't worry. By the way, the literal Hebrew word for fret is to burn, to burn with heat. You burn on the inside. Oh, I don't have this. I'm not getting this. They're getting that. And then you keep practicing that discipline, and then it's going to turn into a deep-seated resentment and anger and rob your peace and rob your joy. And God says through David, don't do that. Forsake it. So this is all addressing our mind how we think, and the issues of the heart. It's a great challenge, tremendous challenge. Rest also has to do with being patient, patiently waiting for God. That's how you delight yourself in God. You patiently wait on Him. We want the answers now. Usually the, God op the way God operates is, no, you need to wait. 
Be patient. The word desire, literally there, um, has many different meanings, but it, it means to uh, rest in God, to find total fulfillment in God, to be nurtured by God, enjoy God. Notice it's delight in the Lord. It's not in delight in the blessings of God or delight in things. It's delight in God. So that's priority number one for a Christian. So uh, that's what I would leave you with in terms of fulfilling this verse. The, the greatest condition for the Christian to receive the desires of your heart is to delight in God. That means love Him, make Him the priority, make Him first and foremost, remind yourself He is the only one that can ultimately satisfy. There's nothing else in this life that can fully satisfy. Family members can't satisfy, your spouse can't satisfy, in the ultimate sense. Total satisfaction and fulfillment first needs to come in your relationship with Almighty God, which for us today is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our satisfaction. He is our delight. He is the one who will never forsake us. He is the one who will never let us down. He is the only one who is always faithful. I love God. That's what it's saying here. You need to love God and pursue Him above all else. That is priority number one. And do that with a passion. Do it regularly. Do it prayerfully, deliberately, with accountability. Then something will happen. You start pursuing God, making Him the priority over all else, based on what He said in His Word, and you will find with time, God will start changing the desires of your heart. God will start molding and actually putting His desires in your... His desires will become your desires. That's the amazing thing about this verse. God, I love you and I want to love the things that you love. Oh, I do love the things that you love and those are the desires of my heart. And now those, your passions are now my passions. These are the things that motivate me in life. This is what I want. And God will start doing and you'll just see, wow, God gave me this desire and it was a holy desire and it was a biblical desire and very practically and specifically, God starts giving you those desires of your heart. They're not things. Jesus said, do not store up treasures on earth. That's not what it's talking about. It's not things. It is godly desires. Delight yourself in the Lord. Love God first and foremost. Make Him the priority and do good. Don't be idle. Don't sit around and be depressed and mope in self-pity doing nothing. That's the worst thing you can do. That's why He says, do good. Obey God. Move into action. Start moving and God will direct you through His Holy Spirit. You can be steered a lot easier when you're moving as opposed to when you're sitting idle. Do good. What good? Good that God commands us in the Bible. Trust in Him. So delight yourself in the Lord and the promise is He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, let's go to the handout there and we'll just go through. Now that I've laid the foundation, here are these seven steps. Now, this here, in this hermetically sealed envelope, was actually a piece of paper that I wrote out last year, December 31st, 2015. It's probably the 20th time I've done it. And at the top, I put Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And I put immediate desires, mid-range desires, and long-term desires. And I wrote them all down, and I put them in every area of life. In my family, in my marriage, in my ministry, in my entertainment, in my this, in my that, or whatever. Wrote them all down. I can't even remember what I said. It was a year ago. Today I'm going to open it and look at it. I'm going to be excited and I'm going to be shocked and I'm going to be embarrassed and I'm going to be humbled. and I, <laughs> I might be laughing and crying at the same time. Because these were my desires a year ago. And, and with time, God reveals our desire. He exposes our desires or He confirms our desires. I've got some of these that I've saved from 25 years ago, and it's painful to look at, man, I wanted that? 
That is horrible. That is selfish. That was stupid. It reminds me of when I was in third grade with my first girlfriend. She was an older woman. She was in fourth grade. I wanted to marry her. That was the desire of my heart. By the time I was in eighth grade, I was like, what an idiot. Anyway. So let's go through these seven principles. And I just challenge you uh, to be, make this a discipline of your life if you want to. And what's amazing, the, the coolest thing about this is when you see God fulfill a very specific desire that you know there is no way you could have done it. No way. When somebody shared this with me when I was a Christian, 19 years old, and I, they had me do the same thing, and I, they asked me, what do you desire? Well, I want to uh, meet a Christian girl that's spirit-filled, loves Jesus, and preferably, since we're in California, has blonde hair. And not two years later, Debbie came into my life. But anyway, she has blonde hair. Um, well, what are some other desires you have? Well, I'd probably like to have children. God honored that with time. Well, what else do you want to do? Well, I'd, I'd kind of like to graduate college because my grades stink right now. Okay. And I graduated from college. That was a good thing. What, well, what do you want to do after college? Well, maybe teach the Bible. So I, I guess I got to study Bible. But I don't have any money, so I can't go to seminary because seminary costs money. But, well, it's a desire, so let's write it. So I wrote down... Uh, go to seminary. Uh, and then what would you like to do? Well, to teach the Bible. Being a pastor, I'm not sure. So he made me do this. I'm 19 years old. We literally wrote all these things down. And with time, a lot of these desires were illegit. They were short-sighted, self-centered, or they just, it wasn't what God wanted. But many of these God fulfilled very specifically. I remember when Debbie and I got married and we did this and we for the first probably 10 years of our marriage, we did this as a discipline every year, sitting down, writing them down. And before we had kids, this is a true story. She can validate this. I think we still have the piece of paper. Uh, when we first got married, she, one of her desires was she wants to have four children. And she said, I prefer two boys and two girls. Really? You know, I'd like to have the girls first because then they can babysit the boys when they're younger. Well, that's too specific. Well, anyway, we wrote it down anyway. And whether it's coincidence or whatever, that's what happened. Now, there are a lot of other things that didn't pan out, but uh, we believe God really cares about the desires of our heart. So, in light of that, let's go to these seven points here. Uh, just a challenge for you. Uh, number one, make a priority of honoring God. Delight yourself in the Lord. We've emphatically talked about that already. Make Him the priority. That's where this starts. This isn't about getting what you want. This is about loving God, honoring God, and having the right priorities in life, which an unbeliever cannot do. That's why this is unique to the Christian. To the believer. So start there. That's the condition. Number two, ask God to give you holy desires while you're doing this. God, give me your desires. Sometimes I, I think I have good desires, but I don't know. That's Psalm 139, verse 1. The psalmist says, Lord, you search me and you know me. Did you know God knows you and God knows me better than we know ourselves? He does. Psalm 139, verse 1, and then Psalm 39, verse 23, is a prayer. God, search me and know me. Expose uh, short-sightedness and sin in my life because I am blind. I'm blindsided to things. So ask God to give you holy desires continually. You know what? He, he will answer that prayer as you make it the priority in your life. Number three, be specific. Specify your desires. Specify. Write them down. Be specific. Matthew 6, 11, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. You know the Our Father prayer, and at the end of the prayer, he said, 
then give us this day. Jesus said you can make a personal, specific, practical request to God if you have the right priorities. Give us this day. And what does he ask for? A very mundane thing, this daily bread. It's very specific. Jesus said we can do that. So that's why specify your desires, write them down, be very specific. And like I said, I did it in all categories of life and short-term, immediate, long-range. The emphasis here on this psalm, by the way, is long-term goals, long-term realities, not immediate appearances. Uh, Number four, you write down your, vet your desires. As you're thinking them through and writing them down. Okay, God, here's, I desire this, but is this in keeping with the Word of God? Is this consistent with what God would want? You pray about them. So Philippians 4, 6 and following is great for that. In, uh, stop worrying and every, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Pray. Get your priorities right. Worship God. Pray. Pray for others. Confess your sin. Then let your request be made known to God. That's Telling him, articulating, delineating your desires. Here's the desires for me, for my personal walk, my marriage, my kids, my job, my finances, my future, my everything. Let your request be made known. Tell God. And examine it through Scripture. Number five, when God answers a very specific prayer, you need to thank him. Thank him. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And everything give thanks, no matter what's going on even with unmet desires. Thank you, Lord. And especially when you get a desire that's met. God, thank you for the finances you just provided at the 11th hour again. Thank you, Lord. Thank Him continually as you see your desires met. I think of Luke 17, 11, the story where Jesus met 10 lepers. He cried out to Him, Son of David, have mercy on us. And that means heal us. We, we live out in that a strange community. Nobody wants to be around us. We are unclean. We are dirty. We are filthy. Heal us. And Jesus, boom, you are clean. They got healed instantly. There were 10 lepers that got healed. Nine of them bailed and left. And then one actually got up, came back to Jesus, bowed down, and said, thank you to Jesus. And Jesus said, wait a minute. I thought I healed 10. Where are the other nine? He appreciated the one giving thanks. This is God recognizing that thanks to God is a way of worshiping Him and an absolute priority. Don't be like one of the nine lepers who forgets God. Number six, confidently lay your desires before God. Uh, Rest in the Lord, 37 verse 7 in our present psalm, resting in the Lord. That's being confident in God, trusting in God, leaning upon Him, knowing that He is in charge. There is no more confident verse than 1 John 5. 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Ask God, and He will give you whatever you want. That's what it says. There is a condition. Ask God, if it's in keeping with His will, He will give you whatever you ask for. That is amazing. So you can ask confidently. If it's in keeping with His will, if it's what He has revealed in Scripture. Number seven. And as you're doing all this, continue to reassess, reevaluate, reassess. Oh, where am I at, God? What have you done with the desire? Have you changed some of the desires in my heart? I remember, this is a tr- true confessions. Can I say this? Uh, when I was at Master's College and Master's Seminary, uh, a new, young, zealous, idealistic, unrealistic, new believer, I wanted to be the next John MacArthur. 
Boy, God has revealed that is not a legitimate desire, Pastor Cliff. You are Pastor Cliff. So you need to reassess. Don't try to be somebody else. Continually reassess your desires. The best way to do that is to let time pass. Let time pass. Wait on the Lord. Psalm 37, many verses there. Wait on the Lord. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. Add the last one. I want to add number eight, which is the crescendo of these points, but also it's the crescendo in Psalm 37. And it lets us know that God isn't primarily talking about the here and now, but ultimate realities, ultimate desires, eternal desires, spiritual desires, because it culminates with salvation in God. These aren't just earthly crass promises. So point number eight is keep an eternal perspective, yet live day to day. Keep an eternal perspective, but live day by day. Eternal perspective, that's Colossians. Keep your eyes on things above, or an eternal perspective. But living day to day, that's Matthew 6, 34, when Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. We're thinking about the future, we're praying about the future, we're asking God to use me in the future, but I am not burdened in worrying and fretting about the future. I'm resting in God about the future. I could die today. So it's eternal perspective, living day to day, don't worry about tomorrow, that way you can be the best steward possible with every day that God gives us. All for His glory. I want to close by reading this climax to this psalm. Follow it with me. Psalm 37, 5, 35 and following. David said, I have seen a wicked... Oh, I'll, I'll just read um, 25 and 26 again, where David says, I have seen young... Oh, I have been young, David said, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Isn't that awesome? If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you're not going to be forsaken by God, even if it feels like it. You're not going to. You're His child. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or His descendants begging bread. All day long He's gracious and lends, and His descendants are a blessing. And then verse 35 and following, David says, I have seen a wicked and violent man. David saw many of them. Spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then that wicked man passed away, and lo, he was no more. Poof, gone. I sought for him, but he couldn't be found. Mark the blameless man. Consider the blameless man. Look at the the godly person. Find one and just watch their life over time. And behold, the upright. For the man of peace, the Christian, the believer, they will have a posterity. That's long-term. The long-term care and keeping of God. Verse 38, but transgressors, those who reject Christ for us, will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked, it'll be cut off. Verse 39, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. There it is, salvation. That is the most important gift. That is the most treasured gift. That is the greatest desire fulfilled in our hearts, if you know Christ, is salvation in Christ. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank Him for this great promise and this wonderful psalm. Father, we thank You for our time together. We thank You for the the Christmas season, the new year that even allows us as believers to reflect on the Scriptures and, and look at practical living as we seek to make sense of this world. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for not leading us astray. Thank you for being so practical and personal as evidenced even in just Psalm 37. God, I pray for every person who knows you personally 
here this day that you would bring this psalm, these amazing promises to our mind regularly, that we would commit uh, our lives to you as you've asked us to do. We would trust you. We would not fret. We would uh, have faith in you. Most of all, that we would delight in you, find total satisfaction in knowing you as the greatest priority, and in the meantime, allow us to watch you answer prayer to fulfill the desires of our heart for our good and for your glory. We thank you, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.